Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's segment of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, and this is our show where we cover what's happening, what's in the headlines, what's hype, what's real, and why they matter or don't matter from our vantage point in tech. And we bring on different experts to talk about different topics. Today's topic is all about contact tracing in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, which we have been covering since mid-January on this show. So those of you that have been listening, thank you for staying with us since the beginning. And this week, we're going to go deep specifically on the privacy aspects of contract tracing and the debates playing out there. And joining me for this episode, we have our A6NZ expert is Joel De La Garza, operating partner for security and a regular on the show. Welcome, Joel. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So first of all, just a quick high-level context for this. There's been a lot of news headlines around contact tracing, and I'll put some of the key ones in the show notes. But in particular, why it matters is that widespread testing is the key to reopening our economy. And a lot of people have described this as a test, trace, isolate framework, which allows you to figure out who's sick, who else might be sick, like where they may be in the network, and then prevent it from spreading. And just to quickly summarize, there's actually a wide range of options. When people talk about contact tracing, it varies from human-based contact tracing, where you have people literally phoning up, interviewing people who are sick, finding out who they've been in contact with, which is a very manual, time-consuming process, to a very automated process where you can have cell phones kind of always on monitoring. And then the other quick thing to think about in the high-level taxonomy before we go to the analysis is the players of who is doing the contact tracing. So this ranges everywhere from state-level contact tracing efforts, such as what's happening in Utah, to nation-state level. And the most popular examples here are India with Arogya Setu, Singapore with Trace Together, South Korea has a very interesting framework, which we can talk about. Israel's Shin Bet doesn't have a specific thing for contact tracing, but they're using existing technology. And then besides nation-state level, employers clearly care about figuring out who can come back to work. Then we also have corporate efforts such as Apple, Google, and then finally open source grassroots sort of citizen initiatives that are bottom up. And we have at a very high level sort of public surveillance type efforts. And we have a separate podcast to go deep on that. So that's a high level summary. Let's quickly start by talking about Apple and Google because they're the ones that dominated the headlines the most. They're calling it, quote, privacy safe contact tracing. I'd love for you to kind of summarize what's happening there from a technical perspective, and then we can go into some of the other societal aspects of that as well. At a high level, basically, everyone that's using this contact tracing infrastructure gets a unique key. So like a number, right? So like today I'd be number 26. And then every day you get a new number. And the mobile devices, as they talk to each other, there's sort of an exchange of these numbers so that I know that let's say you're 13 and I'm 26. We know that 13 and 26 were relative proximity to each other today. Based on Bluetooth. Based on Bluetooth. And so there is this sort of ability to create a register of who was connected to who It does a relatively good job of hiding, identifying information. So you wouldn't necessarily know that it was the two of us, but you would know that we had a contact. So 13 and 26 would have been in contact to each other because of the fact that our phones were self-revealed to one another. But I would not know that it was Joel who may have had COVID and passed it on to me, potentially. That's correct. So you wouldn't even know that I was near you by looking at the data because tomorrow my number changes. And every day my number would change and every day your number would change. And that would be the way that the system would carry on. Now, where it gets interesting is that in the event that I get COVID or you get COVID, we would 
go into the app and flag that as being COVID positive. And from that date, we would then notify you and everyone that I was around that you were in the proximity of someone who had COVID, right? So that gives you the ability to get tested, to quarantine, to kind of react and contact health officials. It's an interesting framework. Okay, so that's how it works at a very high level. I'm really relieved you didn't mention our good friends, Alice and Bob. Google actually did a nice little slide that shows this, and I'll include that in the show notes. So let's talk about some of the criticisms of this approach or where there may be challenges or obstacles to overcome and where technology does and doesn't come in there. So one of the challenges with a lot of these systems The math is always solid, right? Like that's sort of the classic argument is that you can't beat the math and the math is solid. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? And so there are other data points. There are theoretically ways that you could use metadata. You could buy information from advertisers. You could use local BLE beacons to start unmasking people. So even though my number is 26, you may be able to purchase some additional piece of information that would allow you to link that 26 to me. And then you could expose my public COVID status, right? So there are ways to unmask individuals in this kind of a system using that information. These things don't exist in a vacuum. Well, you and many other people I know in the intelligence world have made a joke that nothing's really ever private, even when you think it is. Matt Blaze once wrote an op-ed for me a number of years ago when I was at Wired about how metadata is actually sometimes even more revealing than personally identifying information slash PII. And while people talk a lot about these apps protecting PII, personal identifying information, a combination of metadata can actually reveal so much about a person without really knowing that it is Joel de la Garza or Sonal Toxi. So to your point, that's kind of interesting on that front. But many of the apps and things that we use are already selling our data. Like I think I read a statistic somewhere that about 5,000 pieces of data per user are being sold by companies and have been for years in order to give us the conveniences of everything else that we have in our web-based ecosystem. So specifically in this case, the Apple-Google example, what are some of the technical attack vectors as a security expert where this thing can be kind of turned on its head? So generally, the number one thing that motivates hackers tends to be, well, let's say intruders, tends to be money, stealing stuff. Clearly, this is a situation where there's nothing really to steal here. And so what you'd likely have is a bunch of hackers more in the traditional sense looking to play with the system in such a way that they get notoriety. So denial of service attacks, erroneous entries, like just generally malicious actors trying to to have a way at it would be the things that would be the most concerning because they would probably create the most panic. What if you go around broadcasting fake numbers and just trying to guess at people's number for the day or the week or finding ways to report people erroneously positive for COVID, like you could flood the system with a bunch of positive diagnoses that would freak people out. Is that the equivalent of a denial of service attack? It would be a form, a denial of service attack would be where you just broadcast so many participants that the system is overwhelmed and doesn't function. Right. It would be kind of like that, but imagine a world in which half the participants phone in sick and say they have COVID. And that would be a different sort of version. And by the way, Google will require like a healthcare code or some provider code to verify that a person is indeed sick before the notification propagates, I believe. They haven't released it yet. It's supposed to release actually any time now because it's supposed to be mid-May. Let me ask you at a practical systems level, because you've obviously worked within companies where they've had to scale, store data, transmit data, et cetera. Do you think this kind of system is feasible to process the load that a system of keys would require if it were adopted at scale 
without actually also having location data in order to better target things? I mean, you'd have new keys every day for everyone using it. And then you'd have the mapping of the keys coming into contact with each other. And over time, provided you're around a lot of people and a lot of people are using the system, you'd probably be looking at hundreds of megs per person per phone. We live in a world where some people have gig limits on data transfer. People don't want to waste their data on something like this, and then you would start to see them opting out. But it's also an interesting case where you need multiple inputs of different types of things, whether it's a heart monitor thing or a smart thermometer or different systems. And so I would think of this as similar to being at Box, where you were CISO, and where you would have multiple integrations into your system, like other apps that would have to attach to it. How do you sort of think about the security and the trade-offs there? As you start to open up an ecosystem to other connectors, you actually increase the attack surface. The age-old adage of like a chain being only as strong as its weakest link really applies here. I feel relatively comfortable that Google, Microsoft, and large providers, Apple, etc., would all do a relatively good job of security. They spend tons of money on security and they still have issues. So imagine what happens is you start to add smaller providers into that ecosystem or, or companies that aren't necessarily investing in security. You could potentially at some point jeopardize a lot of very valuable information. This is why standards-based approaches to security and privacy are super important. Like establishing a baseline of security that you have to do or a baseline of privacy protections that you must provide for electronic products is super critical. We have on the back of our phones, we have FCC IDs, we have IEEE certifications. Like we have some level of assurance that the device won't go into flames and kill us. There should theoretically be a similar certification for information security. That makes a lot of sense. You also said earlier that this is interesting, what Apple and Google are proposing, and other people like Bruno Maceias and others have commented on the shift that's happening. A, what is that shift, really, for people who aren't in this world of monitoring every nuance of change in security? And then B, what are the broader implications from your point of view as a security expert? So I think there's been like a pretty large over-rotation on the technical feasibility and there's the broader cultural social discussion that this is playing out against, right? And you can see in countries that are more collectivist and have a greater kind of community-driven orientation, South Korea and such, and then there's the whole like opting in, right? Our phone network doesn't have the ability for the government to necessarily go track everyone like that, whereas other countries do. Technology is like 10% of this thing. This is like 90% culture, traditions, values. And that to me is the really interesting part of how we mesh that with our values. So, you know, I think being an American, we have this belief that's core. It's in our constitution, this belief that we should be free from undue government surveillance, right? Like, you know, illegal searches and seizures are not great. What we've seen over time as new technologies have been developed is sort of an erosion of the wall between sort of our personal space and our privacy, right? And so let me try to expand yeah. that out a bit. No problem. In the old days, before wireless devices and all these things, the government would for example, if they wanted to surveil you, they would have to get a warrant, they'd go into your house, they'd install listening devices. The history of espionage is all about clever ways to hide microphones, just trying to get surveillance equipment into people's homes. With the advent of the new technology, all these devices we have with microphones and these sorts of things, we're always now within an earshot of a microphone. And so the concern is that over time, we just become desensitized to perpetual surveillance. 
And from a privacy perspective, I think what people are generally most concerned about is the slippery slope argument, which is that you start with something like this, you get people to accept it, and then you sort of go down the slope and snowball into some kind of surveillance-based social control. This would represent a shift in the way that we've collected information. For Americans to have this app that's perpetually running on their phone, keeping track of where they go and who they're with, that might be a jarring circumstance. And it's quite similar to a lot of the arguments about warrantless surveillance that we had after 9-11. And the Patriot Act and sort of the things we did on warrantless surveillance, you could start to see a shift in the landscape towards the need to circumvent some of our basic protections for this kind of surveillance. And since we're not looking at content, we don't necessarily need to go before a judge. We don't need to get a court order. And the argument at the time was, we're looking at metadata, we're looking at link analysis, we're basically doing contract tracing, but for terrorists. So what's the solution then? Because a lot of people describe the South Korean model as like a model here, particularly because they were able to fight and fend off COVID much faster than other countries like Italy, for instance. And what's interesting about the South Korean model is it combines not just Bluetooth, which the Singapore model found a lot of technical issues with Bluetooth, but GPS. So that's actual location, obviously. CCTV, like camera footage of people's faces, and then even credit card data, like their payment history. So they combine these three things. But what's really interesting to me is that they apparently use something inspired by us post 9-11, to your point, which is selective revelation, where they basically selectively increase the intrusion into privacy based on the level of detail. You know, as a technologist, you tend to have the classic problem where if you have a hammer, all your problems look like nails. We immediately assume like, well, clearly this is the problem technology can solve. When in reality, when you look at what South Korea has done, technology was a relatively small part of it. Like clearly they had apps and they had built some stuff, relatively unsophisticated in the grand scheme of things. But it was more like that they had this program of putting GPS trackers on people that had just landed in their country, right? That they were using the military to go out there and do a lot of this work. But they had this like federally centralized program for driving this from the top down. And that's why it was so successful initially. There's a story that came out that there is another outbreak that's happening in South Korea. It started in one of the nightclub districts where there were 10 or 15,000 people out at nightclubs having fun. South Korea has to start doing better privacy controls because people didn't self-report or they actively worked to undermine the tracking to hide themselves from the system. How do they do that? They were putting fake names. They were using fake registration information. They were spoofing cell phones. They weren't taking devices with them. Like you name it, they're doing it because ultimately... People didn't want to be part of that. And so now they're in a position where the South Korean government has to actually start thinking through providing some level of privacy assurances and providing some level of anonymity to their citizens so that they don't just revolt against it. And to see that kind of a reaction in an Asian country where they have some different conceptualizations of community versus individual is interesting. Our fuse is a lot shorter. And then the other side of that, there's a dating app that uses very similar technology. It's been doing this for like two years where they like anonymously connect you to people that share the same space with you regularly. People clearly will opt into this behavior. Ultimately, there's definitely got to be some sort of appeal to civic duty. Like you can think of World War I and World War II, the great posters that you got to join up, some form of incentive like that. And then also thinking of ways to communicate value. 
to people. So for example, I would like to know if I was exposed to COVID so that I could protect my family, right? Right. You're basically saying that we can do a lot with carrots versus sticks. So basically, we're kind of hovering around this idea of what happens to privacy when you're talking about people as essentially cell phone signals. And whether that's actually a cell phone or other devices, the point is a device communicating our identity without saying who we are. I'm curious for your take on, do you think that consent is enough, A, to be effective and B, to take care of all these concerns? There is precedence in the legal world, societally, philosophically, where People can give consent, but they don't have to in other ways. So for instance, if you've been diagnosed with AIDS, you may not tell your partner, but they can compel that your partner can be notified. And so I guess I'm saying that it's not so black and white. Like, hey, if people opt in. You and I have talked plenty of times on this show about what users choose to do and what systems do for them. What is your take on that? I think you always want to start with the least coercive model first. You have to take somewhat of a startup approach to this, which is get to MVP, get to minimum viable product on one approach, try it, try approach two, and just continue to iterate. Right. Earlier, I described all the different models, like employer-facing, state, nation-state, citizen, grassroots. There's all these different approaches. Another way to think about this framework is also centralized versus decentralized, like degrees of centralization versus decentralization. That's a useful dimension because centralization can mean like government. It can also mean big companies like Apple and Google. They're big companies. So what's your views on whether we could do this in a very decentralized way from a security perspective? So a good example of decentralized activities that are starting to work is financial service companies in Asia. They have a whole program in place for their employees where they're doing tracing and testing of people that come into the office. They have bought enough capacity of testing machines that they can make sure that all of their employees are being tested on some regular period so that they can catch people as they get infected. And so that's a very localized, decentralized, like this is how that company is going to manage it. And that works specifically for companies that have tremendous amounts of financial resources, as large banks typically do. When you get into sort of smaller rural churches and stuff like that, that becomes much more problematic and much more difficult. And so that's probably a situation where you need some more centralized support or some state, local government type support. Right. It makes me think of the analogy of open source, where if it's a project that's underfunded, like the classic case of that SSH bug, two people maintaining it, like that's actually not a thing you want your entire system relying on security-wise. Absolutely. And I think that we should go back to like the discussion we had about strong encryption and sort of the ability for law enforcement to get access to communications in pursuit of criminal matters. With the encryption debate, what we were talking about was that The way that the laws are written, in order to provide specific services like telecommunications equipment, you have to be able to support these law enforcement use cases. And generally, it's not like a free-for-all. We've gated a lot of that privileged access with a court process. So you have to go before a judge. You have to get a warrant. You can't just sort of drop in and listen to your neighbor's phone calls, right? You can't do it arbitrarily if you're the government. And we actually have a process to manage it like due process if things go wrong. Absolutely. So bottom line it for me, Joel, how should we think about the privacy aspects of contract tracing? It's still an emerging story. might be too late for this pandemic, but not the next one. So I think that this is one of those situations where we have to not necessarily uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so there's probably going to be some trade-off of privacy and some trade-off to live in a healthy society where we all don't get sick and die. 
And that's ultimately kind of like the discussion that we should be having, where there is an acceptable and reasonable trade-off that can be made. We should really make sure that we start with carrots before we resort to sticks and look to have people opting in instead of forcing them into these systems where they have some say in control and agency. We also have to think that when this pandemic is over and when we're beyond that, how do we start to roll back some of these things and how do we time bound them effectively so that it doesn't become kind of a new way to exist? Thank you so much for joining this segment, Joel. Thank you so much.